it was easy at home just sitting at a desk and punching a button. Okay. Um, I'm still going to wait um, for a week or two before I ask for prayers. So um, just know that we carry everybody, but I just really want to get this going because the first couple of classes always have a lot of business work to do. So let's start. I don't know if you want to announce or not, but Heather brought food and it's just here in the kitchen. There's food in the kitchen, coffee, and food. Um, I tell you what, let's say prayers and. Um, you can get it at your leisure, whatever you'd like. There's food there and coffee and water, so help yourselves, okay? In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our lives from you and for your presence through the day, for your words to us, for those who read the daily Mass, and um, especially for this time now. I ask a special <coughs> blessing on the work that we're doing together. Um, my own picture of it is that we are helping each other up purgatory. It's, you don't have to share that, it's, um, um, but I believe this work is important. Help us um, to give ourselves, particularly to John Paul, what he's doing. Um, he expresses his disappointment, I think partly in the church, in the shepherds, because um, however he learned about it, he found out that lots of people didn't read his encyclical and lots of priests don't. And I can't believe bishops don't, but... Help those of us who are here to take seriously um, <coughs> what he's offering. It's, a, it's, it's you speaking in our world through him now. Um, help us to take it in, not just in our minds, um, but to live them, to bring you um, what we're learning here in all that we do with each other and our world. Give us, um, increasing us a spirit of humility and a boldness. <coughs> help us to be bold. We know the truth that's been given to us. Um, help us um, to put away all fear and carry you to our world. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Okay, um, for those of you who are new, um, for those of you who are old, we're going to do a poem. You know it. Um, some of you have already heard it a couple of times. You've seen me break up. I can't. It's hard for me to get to the end of this poem and fold it together. Let's see what happens today. I'm older. Um, um, the poem we read last week was Gerard Man Manley Hopkins' Windhugger. And um, 19th century poet. He's one of the great innovators in English poetry. What he did with the English line with music was remarkable. Um, so if, you, um, if you've not read that poem or you've heard me read it, I would just encourage, you know, these are like psalms. You can read them at night. They're, they're meditate, they're meditations in some ways. So take them home and read them. And if you do read them, my own suggestion, is those of you who've been at this for a while know, read them aloud. Poetry is meant to be heard with some music. You want to hear it. Read it aloud. Supernatural Love is by a contemporary poet, a woman, an American, um, who's doing something unusual because most contemporary poets are writing in free verse. She's writing in a, in a metrical form that's formal. It's, it's closer to traditional 
English poetry, so it's, it's a rare, unusual thing. And this poem happens um, to be um, a recollection of Christ at work in the world. Exactly in the same way that was true with the wind hover, um, we're having a poet recall an event um, that's got Christ hidden in it. So, the, <laughs> um, let me just give this because it'll help. So she's an older woman now. She's an older woman looking back at herself as a child. I believe that what this poem is about, you won't get it on the surface, it's about a calling. It's a moment when she was four years old and something happened that was an absolutely ordinary thing, but in one sense it represents a call as a poet. Her love of words, her, her wanting to do something with them that most people don't do. Um, it's an experience with her father. She's, she's um, stitching the word beloved in one of those samplers and she pricks her finger and her father watches on and it's a typical sort of um, experience involving a father and a four-year-old girl. Um, that's it. So on the surface, nothing seems to be going on. It's just a poem about a four- We've got to do something. Um, Why do we need a name? We'll talk about it next time. I'll, I'll mention it. It's too much right now. These troublemakers who just come in. Okay, the wind, or sorry, supernatural love. Sit wherever you'd like, wherever you're comfortable. Sit wherever you're like. Cause as much commotion as you like. I'm going to make fun of you. It's so good to see you all again. Generally good to see you all again. I got a letter from Ellie, I mean I wrote her ask because she's printing off the materials, the secretary who's doing this, and at the end of her letter, it, it was a wonderful letter, she's so kind and so generous in serving the way she does. She said she was so excited to know that people were back in class physically. Um, it was a wonderful moment last week to be present because we've been, we've been living in a Gnostic world without our bodies. This is, we are not Gnostics. We are incarnational people. To be back present in our bodies was a humbling moment. Thanksgiving moment. Okay. Um, Schnackenberg's Supernatural Love. My father at the dictionary stand touches the page to fully understand the lamplit answer, tilting in his hand his slowly scanning magnifying lens. A blurry glistening circle he suspends above the word carnation. I'm not even getting through the first. starting over. My father at the dictionary stand, fathers and daughters have got to love this poem. And mothers, I mean too, it's a mother writing. But, um. My father at the dictionary stand touches the page to fully understand the lamp-lit answer, tilting in his hand, his slowly scanning magnifying lens. A blurry glistening circle he suspends above the word carnation. 
Then he bends so near his eyes are magnified and blurred, one finger on the miniature word, as if he touched a single key and heard a distant, plucked, infinitesimal string, the obligation due to everything that's smaller than the universe. I bring my sewing needle close enough that I can watch my father through the needle's eye as through a lens ground for a butterfly who peers down flower hallways towards a room shadowed and fathomed as this study's gloom where as a scholar bends above a tomb to read what's buried there, he bends to pour over the Latin blossom. I am four. I spill my pins and needles on the floor trying to stitch Beloved, X by X. My dangerous bright needle's point connects myself illiterate to this perfect text I cannot read. My father puzzles why it is my habit to intensify, identify carnations as Christ's flowers, knowing I can give no explanation but cuz. Word roots blossom in speechless messages the way the thread behind my sampler does where following each X, I awkward move my needle through the word whose root is love. He reads a pink variety of clothes, carnaccio, the Latin meaning flesh, as if the bud's essential oil brushed Christ's fragrance through the room. The iron fresh odor carnations have floats up to me, a drifted secret bitter ecstasy, the stems squeak in my scissors. Child, it's me. He turns the page to clove and reads aloud, the clove a spice dried from a flower bud. Then twice as if he hasn't understood, he reads from the French for clue, meaning a nail. He gazes motionless, meaning a nail. The incarnation blossoms, flesh and nail. I twist my threads like stems into a knot and smooth beloved, but my needle caught within the threads, thy blood so dearly bought. The needle strikes my finger to the bone, I lift my hand, it is myself I've sewn, the flesh laid bare, the threads of blood my own. I lift my hand in startled agony and call upon his name, Daddy, Daddy. My father's hand touches the injury as lightly as he touched the page before, where incarnations bloom from roots that bore the flowers I called Christ. When I was four. When I was four. Okay, quick. Um, I don't want to, you know that this is not the literature class, so I'm not going to take a lot of time, but um, let me just quickly mentioned some of these things um, because if this has been a first reading for any of you you're probably not going to see a lot of it but um, she's stitching the word beloved think about all the allusions in this poem that go back to Christ Paul um, begins so many of his letters with beloved um, she's stitching the word clue um, has a double meaning um, a nail, it can mean flesh, a nail. So in one sense, there are these allusions to nails. She pricks herself with a needle. Um, she, um, she describes the father's hallway in terms of a tomb. So 
Think about all the allusions to beloved, Christ on the cross, a tomb, dying. The words when she or cuts herself, wounds herself, are daddy, daddy. It's Christ's call from the cross, father, father. She's cross-stitching, the word cross, she's cross-stitching. Um, everything in the poem, her blood, the needle, everything speaks. Everything has a word. The needle speaks. Um, where's the, the one? I lift my hands myself, I've sown the flesh laid bare, the threads of blood my own. Um, the stem squeaks in my scissors, child, it's me. Um, if you, I'm, I mean, people don't usually go this far, but if you think about um, John's passage in, in John, the beginning of his gospel, in the beginning was the word. Um, the serious Christian poets, Catholic poets, cannot look at anything and not find everything speaking because everything was made by Christ. So everything has its seal. So she's not being artificial. She's, she's seeing typically what other people don't see. Everything in the poem speaks. Um, she's four years old. She has no clue about what's going on. Does the father, he's an intellectual. First thing he does <laughs> when she, when, because she's going around with this word carnation, carnatio, the incarnation is the root of our, the incarnation, which is the major event in history. Um, he goes to a dictionary, <laughs> the way men typically do, or intellectuals, go to a dictionary, as if a dictionary were to give them meaning. Um, the meaning of the poem is that experience, what happens. The amazing thing about this poem is that on the surface, nothing happens. She's stitching, and she pricks herself, and that's it. How many people would find, in that moment, because we all had moments like that. Mothers, I mean, how many, how, many, how many occasions do you have in which you watch your child injure himself or herself all the time? How many see in that moment a sharing on the cross? That in that moment, a child's with Christ. So the amazing thing about this is, is that nothing happens. It's a very ordinary moment. Um, and yet it's full of wonder the way that she presents it because in it, like Hopkins Windover, we see Christ. She's participating in the cross at four. Does she have any clue? A child can't intellectualize their experiences. Lots of adults can't. You know, she, she feels it, she knows it through her emotions. Something's going on, she loves the word. She's pricked, does she see the meaning of it? No, but this is a woman writing ages later, looking back on a moment that was decisive for her. I really believe it's about a calling, that this is one of those early moments that shaped her life. So, any quick questions? I don't want to take any time really, but um, particularly for any of the newcomers, any, any questions? Well, I just noticed that at the bottom you said she was born in 1973, and then in the 90s she won all these awards, and I thought that was She's only not. She's a teenager. She's born in '53. I don't know. I'll check. Yeah, I looked it up. Oh, you did. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. there you go again. I went to the dictionary. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I thought. Thank oh you. my gosh, how does this woman do all of this stuff? Yeah. Calling. Yeah. But yeah. yeah. 
for those of you who weren't here before in the first year, I learned early on um, <laughs> that I could count on Mary. Okay. <laughs> to find the wrong name. No. <laughs> I can't remember. There was that wonderful put down that you had that I just so enjoyed. Oh, yeah, what was that? Because I, I tend to heat cold on people's head all the time. And she said, stop your whining. Yes. Oh, yeah. You were what? talking about stop somebody whining. whining all the time, and then you started whining, and I said, stop your whining. <laughs> okay, let's start. One, before everybody starts to leave, you want to go over Hollywood. And, and two, there's Suzanne's reminding everybody, if you want some food, take take a minute. We're gonna we're gonna start, but I'm gonna just ignore you guys when you go in now. <laughs> no. I'll do it. I think we, we lost power. We did. On the oh we did. Yeah. Oh, oh God, what do I do? Well, you just, have to just start it again. Are you okay with that, Mike? Do you know what to do? The wind is probably messing with stuff. Sorry, we couldn't. Oh. Maybe I totally understand your panel. You want to turn it off and come in again? Absolutely. Oh my gosh, thank you so much. I will give them right back. Sneak in. Sneak in. I'm going to sneak in here. That's too low of a connection. I was trying to see the weather. Click that one. I hope this doesn't have your phone go out. Here, you want to do it? <laughs> here, just go out. Yeah. 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 There's just There's no other. I must have been the Yeah. I guess so. Is it supposed to rain tonight? Light. Possibility. I don't know what percentage it is, but possibility. Or tomorrow. I work with landscaping, so it's supposed to be late tonight into early tomorrow. Raining? Oh, that's so, that's great. You're still over there. Are you Same time? place. You're full time over there, part time? I started part time. Three days a week. We're not owned by Alpine. Oh. Sign one ball from Hawaii. Which is all over the U.S. You buy six hundred stores. Did this back to you? Well, the owner was my buddy. Yeah. Um, we, we had we had a, um, a power outage for a second here. 
Hi, Lori. Good to see the two of you. Welcome to this group. We're starting. So you just missed um, my rereading of Supernatural Love, and you've heard it, I'm sure, a couple of times. So let's start. I want to get us going. Okay. Um, just business stuff again. Um, Thank you, Dad. Have you received a sign-in? I already got it. And you've received a sign-in? Anybody not received a sign-in? Okay. Two. Okay. I have. You have not. Now you have. Two basic principles for the class. This, I'm just repeating myself, but going to basics again. Um, the two reasons we're here, speaking really honestly, um, uh, are uh, to make ourselves better human beings. I'm saying that honestly. Um, if that isn't one of our purposes, I don't know why we're here, but, but it seems to me one of the things that um, we're doing together is trying to help us become better people. Um, whoever it is God made us each to be, to help realize that in our lives. And to do that, um, to give a defense of our faith, because it's through our faith and our powers of reason um, that we would be helped in that task to try to to live our faith more completely, more fully, to become better, whoever it is each one of us is. Okay, those are the two aims. So up front, um, we all want to be better. I hope um, we all believe we can be better. I hope. Um, um, the other is that um, I'm not going to assume that you've done the reading for any of these books. Fidea Ratio, um, Benedict's Address, or Lewis's Works, or Chesterton. So I'm not going to be giving lectures, per se. What I'm going to do is go through the books the same way I did the literature. So I'm not going to assume that you've read anything. I'm not going to lecture on it. What I'm going to do is give background stuff and present major themes, and then go through the work, um, section by section, with you. Um, trying to point out what I think are some of the more significant points and also tr to try to relate them to our lives the way we did in literature. Nothing's going to change in that. So that's the way I'm going to go about this um, meeting after meeting, okay? Um, it's important that you read the works. Um, I know some of you have um, busy lives. Um, I said this at, um, four years ago, that's when we began, God, um, that um, it's exactly like the Eucharist. It's, it's, an, it's analogous. Um, it, it'll mean more if you fully participate in it. If you've read it and you've thought about it, you're going to get more out of it. But if you are not read it because you're busy, do not let that keep you from class. I think a lot goes on whether you've read it or not. You'll just learn a lot. It was true for literature. It'll be true for this. I'm sure those of you who did the literature, I'm, I, I can't believe all of you read all the literature. I mean, I know um, you, lots of you struggle with it, but um, you'll learn a lot in the class anyway, so even if you can't do the reading, don't let that keep you from class. I'm asking everybody to come five minutes early just because um, it's, it's good to say hello. I mean, it was a clear joy last week and um, getting food and stuff like that. Try to come five minutes early so we can start on time. If you can't come, 
on time because of engagements or family or whatever it is, come. Do not let your being late keep you from coming. I can't say that strongly enough. Be here. Even if you're late, just come, okay? So, and I think we've got a Holy Week coming. I'm not going to tackle that tonight, but think about it. I'll get back to you. I think I'll probably send an email and ask for your responses. Because I think since it's a Tuesday night, we can meet. But some of you may be loaded with commitments. So I'll write an email and check with you and see um, if if enough of you are committed to something else, then we'll cancel. If not, we'll go ahead with class. But I'll, I'll write an email just to get a feel for what you're doing, okay? Um, okay. Um, I think that's it. Um, every week I'm going to try, no, I will get out a short, a brief outline just to give you, I wanted to get to the board tonight to put it on the board, but it just, trying to get this set up. It was all new for me. Um, That's Chuck. Yeah, I know. I just keep, um, Melody, I think, was on. I may have lost her. Um, I will have a brief outline um, because it'll give you a sense of simple things that I want to cover in the text, I mean, in, in the evening, and a more, a more detailed outline. Um, um, Ellie will make these available, but I'm going to make them available online. I'll write you a note. You can access them in our site. I would ask that all of you um, print them off yourself just because it would um, defray costs for the church, that the church doesn't have to take care of all of this. So where you can do that, please. And I'll cut down the number of copies here. But for the first few meetings, I'm going to make everything available so you have copies. Um, um, I think that's it. In the first class last week, I gave you a list of terms because John Paul makes allusions to a lot of things. Um, you've got terms there. It's just my way of trying to help you through the reading. Um, and I, I, I set out a list of problems, what I think are some of the things we have to be concerned about because of our faith, and that clearly John Paul had on his mind when he wrote this. Okay. Um, but you have to go back, you have to go back to the, um, to the first class to get those terms, because I'm not going to repeat them each class, but if you go back to the uh, first class, you've got those terms, okay? Um, I set out a number of problems and, and followed that up with a list of what I think are some of the central truths of the Catholic faith that I just wanted to be clear about before we started. So if you take a look at the brief outline, the one-page outline, you all should have a copy of it, you'll see basically um, that outline, okay? Um, one more thing that didn't get on the notes, but that it would be good for you to know. Um, a couple of things, actually. If you look at the structure of Fide Ratio as a whole, if you take the whole thing, John Paul has, by the way, this is the, for those of you, you know you can get online, the page numbers online will not correspond to the page numbers here in the book. 
Um, but John Paul has organized the encyclical so that he numbers sections, not paragraphs, sections. So when I refer to a section, I'll refer to that number. So you can go to that number and then try to find it um, if you don't have the book. If you've um, printed off a hard copy of your own, you'll be able to follow along easily. If you look at the structure of the whole of the whole um, encyclical, um, John Paul makes an interesting uh, maneuver. Um, I think it's in 30, you don't need to follow this, or you don't need to go to the book, but just because I just want to make a general statement here. In section 30, John Paul has been um, making the claim that there are basically two truths that are important for us to know. One of the truths is uh, those truths that we can come through through speculation, what we would call speculative knowledge. You're trying to theorize about the truth of something. And the other is faith, and he makes it more clear than anybody I, I've ever known in an encyclical um, saying that faith is a form of knowledge. And it's really important to see it that way. We live in a world in which people think the only kind of knowledge is empirical. It's the only knowledge that we can depend on is the kind of knowledge that depends on our senses and our experiences and experimentation. John Paul is making it very clear that God has revealed himself to man and he's given us a knowledge about him that is certain. There should be no questions about it. I'm going to go over that in, in again in a minute. But that's, that's his purpose. It's to set out that there are these two kinds of knowledge and it's absolutely important for all of us according to our faith. It's less true for Protestants. It's not true for a secular world. It's really true for us to bring those two things together. Um, and he, he's writing with that in mind because it's addressing a specific problem. I'll get to it in a second. But at this point, in, at the end of, um, I think it's chapter 2, 3, he says that he wants to go on to look at this relationship between um, the truth of philosophy and the truth of faith. That's what he's going to go on to do. But he says before he does that, he wants to take... Um, he wants to make a digression. And he says, um, this is 31, human beings are not made to live alone. So I just want to point this out structurally. John Paul begins, Fide Ratio, saying, each one of us is on a journey. And it begins with the lines that I read last, last week. It begins with an experience of our personal self-consciousness. It's that moment when all of us become conscious of things and we ask ultimate questions. And listed them last week. Um, how did I get here? Where did I come from? Where am I going? What's the meaning of my existence? Um, why is there so much suffering in the world? If there's a God, how can he not be a bad God to allow all this suffering? Why does God allow all this? So when each of us as an individual reaches that point of self-consciousness, we begin to ask those questions. And it's important to see that it's in asking those questions that 
our consciousness enlarges, we begin to ask questions about, is there a God? If there is, what's my relationship to him? How can so much evil go on? Questions like that. But at this point, in the encyclical says, um, to go on in this journey, uh, it's essential that we go on with other people. We have to trust other people. And he devotes a major section of the, this encyclical to, to that fact. So I just want you all to be aware of that structurally. He begins by emphasizing the fact that um, the journey is a, begins with a personal self-consciousness, an I, a self. But several chapters into the encyclical, he's going, we can't continue this journey without entrusting ourselves to others. I don't want to deal with that now, but I want to come to it before we um, leave tonight. Why is that so? Why do we just not stay in that self-consciousness? Why does it involve others? Why is that so important? Because he says it's essential. Okay? So, just, we've got to do something about this. Um, okay. Um, and one last thing. I'm half tempted to ask somebody, but I'm not going to do that. I think I'm going to ask everybody. You know that it's not a small concern for me that we, we be able to give a better defense of our faith than we do. It's too easy for us to just sit on our faith because we believe it's certain and not go into the world. John Paul's encyclical is doing everything it can to push us into the world to say it's gotta, we've got to live it. And there are some of the terms that he uses that makes that clear. We cannot rest on our laurels. We cannot. Um, so what I would ask all of you to do is, if, for those of you who are taking notes, keep a page where you're um, keeping account of proofs, ideas that you would make to defend your faith. What are they? You know, if... if um, let me see if I can give an example. We were with somebody a couple of weeks ago, and I said I was admiring his home because he had um, images and, and he was Protestant. He had um, writings from Scripture, images from Scripture, and I was complimenting him and saying that I was, it was a pleasure to see it. And I think I made the re remark that um, uh, not enough people listen to God today. I mean, they just it's, we're in our heads and we don't. And his response was immediate. Immediate. He, he went to the quote in scripture where he said, uh, um, they know my voice and I know theirs. And Christ is talking about being the shepherd, the good shepherd, and he says, they know <laughs> Good for you. Um, and what he was saying was um, that he listens to his voice all the time. Okay? I just, um, so that's an, what's the difference be some, be, between somebody who claims to move by the Spirit all the time, who, who may be a Catholic, because that's, that's one aspect of the Protestant world, the, the, the friends, the, the Quakers, who believe that they have this inner light, and that guides everything they do. What's, is there a difference between that inner light of a Quaker and a Catholic who takes the Holy Spirit seriously. If there is a difference, what is it? Um, I'll give another example. Um, I know of somebody close whose daughter um, is on the web a lot. 
so she's very conscious of all the stuff that goes on in her world today and she asked her father if he was sex or a feminist and he said no he wasn't and she said so that means you're sexist <laughs> that black white mentality if somebody put either of those two things the examples I'm using to you what would your response be and I'd like to encourage everybody right now just to think of this because I, I, I don't think taking Christ to the world means beating people over the head doesn't work. <laughs> right. So, um, how prepared are you to ask questions when you're presented with a view that differs from our own? Can you ask a question that will go to the position somebody's taking that will open a discussion, make possible discussion between you and whoever you're dealing with? Can we do that? One of the reasons I, one of the reasons I want to do Fide Ratio and Regensburg Address and C.S. Lewis and Chesterton is because every one of them is dealing with a problem in the world through the use of reason. They're making rational arguments all the time. Can we do the same with the understanding that whatever reason we use is infused by our faith and we hope it might affect somebody else? So keep a list in your notes of what you think are arguments or proofs or lines of thought. Because remember, one of the purposes of our getting together is, can we give a defense of our faith? How do we do that? Because we are, we are in the minority in the world. John Paul is only writing this because he's addressing a real problem for all of us. Okay. Okay, let's, with that... So one of the other handouts I gave you was a sheet that I think has um, Faith and Reason according to St. Thomas. Yeah. There's, um, last week I, I gave you what was St. Thomas's answer to the materialist position, the belief that there's nothing but matter. I've got that down there so you can see his argument. I mean, he makes it really clear that matter doesn't explain itself. So that's my effort to begin this log keeping of arguments, things for you to be aware of that you might be able to draw on. I've also included a couple of chapters from the Bible because I'd like to I'd like to refer to them tonight. Uh, but let me let me go back to where we left off last week. What I'd like to do is go over some of the problems in our world and the, some of the truths that we begin with this campaign. Why did John Paul write Fide Aratio? It's the first encyclical dealing with philosophy since Pope Leo III's Eterne Patris, the Eternal Father, in 1879. That means it's been over a hundred years since anybody's written an encyclical dealing with philosophy. Why did John Paul pick this out now? Okay. Uh, my answer to that, he doesn't give it in the book, so take this provisionally. I think we live in the most rationalistic age that's ever existed in history. I'm going to say that categorically. Um, we, we produce people who are more broadly educated. We produce more numbers of people who are educated than any other historical period that I'm aware of. I'm not a historian, but, but I teach literature from the beginning to here. 
I've never seen anything like it. We live in an age in which we've made such advances because of what reason can do with technology. So people today have every reason for not having faith because reason accomplishes so much. If you happen to believe in a, if you happen to be a Protestant who believes that reason is corrupt, um, you you probably give people a reason for not joining the Christian faith because reason's not good. There's every reason in our world not to turn to faith because with reason we are so capable. We're the most comfortable people in the world. We're the most educated. Why go to God? I'm saying that seriously. Why go to God? Reason's enough. I think that's the underlying assumption of our age, largely. It's what's produced so many problems. John Paul is writing this in that context. He's saying we, we have got to do a better job with philosophy, with what we do with reason. Because in our faith, the, the two belong together. That's the whole purpose of this encyclical. It's not an accident that he wrote it at this age. He wrote Theology of the Body because sexuality is such a major problem in our time. It's not a small problem. Marriages are hurting. Sexuality is hurting. What we do with our minds is hurting. So often what we do with our minds is not healthy. Um, so he's writing an encyclical in which he's encouraging people to recover a sense of philosophy. That's not been done since Pope Leo's um, encyclical, Eterni Patris. And by the way, just as a historical note, it's, it's really interesting. Two of the major philosophers in our time, both Catholic, responded to that call by Pope um, Leo. Um, Etienne Gilson and Jacques Maritain. Um, I, I think Jacques Maritain is one of the greatest philosophers of the 20th century. He, he's written a book on, on every aspect of life. Those of you who love art, who love teaching, you should read a book called Creative Intuition in Art and Poetry. He's written on science, on nature, on politics, on psychology, on art. There's not a, an area of our lives that he hasn't touched on bringing Thomas into the world. What was her name again? Jacques Maritain. Oh, Jacques, yes. Jacques, Mir Jacques Maritain. Um, French, oops, French philosopher. Um, they quote him a lot in the Magnificat. Do they? I mean, we read that. Yeah, I'm not in fact, uh, last week there was one by him. I think it was Sunday. Boy, this isn't good. Jacques Maritain. Find a better There's more in the bottom right. They're stuck to the. Yeah. And Etienne Gilson is the other. Um, anyway, he's one of the greatest philosophers of our time. And um, um, Creative Intuition in Art and Poetry is an amazing book, but um, he's got one on politics. Oh, the Common Good is a really important book. Um, the Common Good. Um, I gave you the terms. Here are some of the problems. I'm just going to list some of the problems that we have to deal with. The first is, it's important not to forget that we are involved in a spiritual warfare. And I, I want to underline that because um, we live in a world in, in which we're encouraged to believe that we'll be happy if we're comfortable and successful and secure. So security, comfort, pleasures are the great aims. There's no place in that list for spiritual warfare. 
if anybody thought about this seriously, you'd understand how serious it is because it means it means going up against the devil. And I hope everybody's clear on this today. You don't want to go up against the devil alone because the devil outsmarts all of us. I mean, he was the first of the angels. He was the one closest to Christ in image. I didn't watch the awards. I'm not interested. But I, I read about what happened with um, Will Smith and Denzel Washington. And I saw the... Chris Rock. Or, well, well, or Will Smith, yeah. Well, Denzel Washington is the... Is, um, after... After Smith went up and hit Rock, apparently Denzel Washington went up to him and he said, at the moments of your greatest exaltation, at the moments of your greatest success, it's there that you're going to meet the devil. I was so proud. Um, he, he's Christian fundamentalist. That that word got out and that Will Smith would have had somebody like that that he respects say that. You know, at, your, it, at the moments of your highest glory, be ready to meet the devil there. Um, the devil comes out. The, the, I just want to underscore this. The devil, angels are pure intellectual beings. They're, they don't have bodies. They're not individuated by matter the way we are. They don't have bodies. They're all intellect. So the depth of their powers of intellect are great. Imagine try, don't, don't, or imagine trying to outfox the devil. Don't, you don't want to tempt him that way because you lose. It's only through Christ's help that we can deal with those things. So it's important to not lose sight of the fact in a world that's given to material comfort to remember that we're in a spiritual warfare. Every single one of us is doing battle every day. That battle should be a source of grace, most of all in our sufferings. Wherever a suffering takes place, it's important to know Christ is there. In fact, I'm going to, um, so, sorry, I, I, this is repetitious for those of you who've been with, been doing this for, but for those of you who are, who are not, one of the works that we read together some time ago was Boethius's Consolation of Philosophy. You all, those of you who've read it know. In that book, Boethius, who is an extraordinary, he did one of the most important works on the Trinity, and Consolation of Philosophy is, is one of the best works in the medieval period between St. Augustine and St. Thomas. If you've not read it, read it, The Consolation of Philosophy. Boethius has been accused of a crime that he's not committed, and he's going to be executed. And the book begins with his whining. I'm not saying anything. <laughs> I know what you're thinking. Um, he's whining, and Lady Philosophy comes to it's, it's It's a moment of illumination. Lady Philosophy comes to him and says, stop your whining. Stop your, the, pro the problem with you is you're reading too much poetry and literature. Um, and she takes him through this argument to help him recover. It's anamnesis. It's recover what he's lost in his memory. It's what the Eucharist is meant to do to take us back to Christ so that we can meet him now. Um, and one of the truths that she comes to in, in that is if God created the world, evil does not exist outside of God. It's not something else. If you put those two things together and they're both eternal, it means there's something outside of God, which cannot be. I mean, he's being itself. Evil's got to be a privation. Any other way of thinking of it doesn't make sense. It's a privation. It's a loss. It's a turning away from God. So at one point she says, because God knows this, he allow, it's the Job question, why does God allow so much suffering? 
He does it to test us. To remember, our sin is a grave sin. Our sin is a grave sin. We care. I think we all carry around in us an instinct of defiance from our fall. We define God. It's with us. It's part of our fall. Um, our original sin was against God. That's how great it is. Um, and the conclusion she comes to is there is no bad fortune. God allows this stuff in order to help us turn to him, to learn to correct our wills, to test our faith, because how often do we do things according to a Jewish law? Because we want to show how righteous we are. You know, I'm doing everything. I, I, let me leave the old, old word up. Look how, look, what good, look how good I am as a Christian. How righteous I am. Because the test is to see if we can come to a point where we love freely, not for what we can get out of it. That's the cross. That's the center of our faith. So she says, she says, there is no bad fortune. There is no such thing. Because no matter what's going on in the world, God is always doing something to bring good out of it. Good is always at work. Do we see it? So to go back to my point a minute ago, so in the spiritual warfare, when we're dealing with suffering, either our own or the suffering of other people, how's our faith? Do we really see in that moment an occasion of grace? There's, you cannot read St. Paul and not hear him saying, in my suffering is a joy. How are we doing on that in our own lives? How are we doing with respect to our faith? So, first, we're in a spiritual warfare. And if anybody's in doubt about the complexity of it, take a look at the devil. We're not up against an easy force. Cunning, shrewd, um, intellectually sh shrewder than any of us can be with our education. How much do we carry Christ into those struggles? Okay. We talked about the nuns, the people leaving the church, and what's going on. Um, we live in a we live in a culture which makes comfort, security, and wealth more important than anything else in the world. If we have that, why turn to God? We've got everything we want. Boethius said, for those of you who remember Consolation, he said, there are four goods in the temporal order that almost everybody pursues and um, they'll never lead to happiness because they're all perishable. It, it's only when we stay rooted in those things that are imperishable, incorruptible, that we will be happy. And just for those of you who have not read Consolation, you know that um, at the end, Lady, Lady Philosophy has taught Boethius a lot. She's helped him recover a lot. He's still going to be executed. Knowing the truth doesn't mean we're going to be spared a cross. Right? I mean, so for us, it should be a grace. How are we doing on that? Um, four goods are the goods that most people pursue, but they're they'll never lead to happiness because they're all fleeting. What are those four goods? Those of you who... Wealth. Wealth. Fame. Fame. Passion. Pleasure. Pleasure. Power. 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 Go over them again. Wealth. 
fame, pleasure, power. Because with those we think we can do anything and we can please ourselves. We're wealth, fame, pleasure, power. Can you look at a modern non-believer who doesn't have one or all of those as the aim of his life? I want money, I want power, I want attention, I want pleasure. The, the, the base, the, the skeleton of that um, constellation of philosophy is to turn, to turn away or at least keep them in their place. Those are worldly pleasures. They're, they're, they're natural to us. They're good. The trouble is if we make them everything, we're in trouble. We're actually setting up, setting up ourselves for misery. They won't make us happy because every one of them is fragile. It'll be lost. Seek power, somebody else will take it away. Seek wealth, it'll disappear. Pleasure is fleeting. You know, fame is unreliable. Okay? So, um, that's the second problem in our world. We've got to deal with that. I've spoken about materialism. Um, um, I spoke briefly about the differences between um, Catholics and Protestants. I, want, I don't want to go back to that. Remember, one of the most important differences between the Protestant and Catholic mind is the Protestant believes the consequences of the fall were complete. Complete. When we turned from God, we became depraved. We are depraved in essence. That's fundamental to the Protestant mind. Only grace can get us out. We're depraved. The Catholic has always said, always will, we're not depraved. You can't destroy an essence of God. God made man good in essence. That's his essence. Read Genesis. It was good. 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 Um, um, we can lose that goodness. That's an evil. Um, evil's not a good in itself, a thing in itself. Um, The Protestant believes we are wounded. We suffer the effects of concupiscence. Catholic. Sorry, sorry, cats. By the way, I wanted to mention that. Thanks. <laughs> I wanted to mention that. Just uh, Zen's reminder is a good reminder for me. I, I'm, I'm assuming you've already caught it that every once in a while I get going and I my words slip and I'll use one word for another. I'll say Hector instead of Achilles or you know whatever it is. Um, if you're confused, stop me. If you're confused, stop me. Um, and ask. Um, but if you know the answer, just go on. I mean, I hope I'll get it clear. I mean, I think I'm, I'm still clear enough that I can follow up a, a, a line of thought pretty decently. But I'm just aware my mind is going and it um, so you guys are gonna have to suffer for a while or um, or take some time to catch me on it but you're not alone. sorry you're not alone <laughs> I know <laughs> I know thanks Connie I don't feel alone in that regard either mm -hmm. I wanted if you turn to that thing on Shakespeare I mean on St. Thomas I wanna I wanna I want to just list a number of what I think are Catholic positions that respond to the world. 
and it's important not to lose sight of these things. So John Paul is defending the truth. That, that's, one of, that's central to his encyclical, okay? To bring faith and reason together. Now hold on to this. I, it's on that sheet I gave you, so you got it. Um, but I want to I want to take a minute with here. If one tries to use reason to prove an article of faith, the Trinity, the incarnation, the resurrection, those are mysteries. We only we only come to the knowledge we have about it, and that should be a certain knowledge, not a shaky knowledge. John Paul is going to make that really clear. That's that's not a shaky knowledge. That's a that's a that's a fact. It comes from God. That can't be questioned. <clears throat> if one tries to use reason to prove an article of faith, he'll fail producing agnosticism in believers and skepticism in those who doubt. Is that clear? If you try to use reason to prove an article of faith, if you try to use reason to prove the Trinity, you fail. We can't. It's a mystery. And if you do that, you, you, what you're going to do is create the conditions for somebody to doubt you. All you're going to do is create doubts. You're, you're not helping anything, you're just producing doubts. By the same token, if one uses faith to prove philosophic truths, he'll also fail. It'll produce skepticism or fideism. Fideism just means having faith and believing faith is enough without reason. So if we don't get those two things right, we're going to create problems. If we take a stand just based on our faith without an ability to use reason to help grow in our faith, we're cutting ourselves short. We're undermining our faith. Okay? That's not a Catholic position. The Catholic has always believed we were not corrupt, we are not depraved by nature, we are good and wounded. And our concupiscence sometimes is so overwhelming, I, I know this for myself, our concupiscence is so great that, it, that it, um, we find it sometimes hard not to sin. Otherwise, why would you go to confession? Okay. Here's two things. So, how we use faith and reason matters. This is absolutely important. Um, the unity. Listen to this really carefully. The unity of faith, the unity of faith cannot be, cannot be partial. It cannot be national, ethnic, racial. The, un the unity of spirit, the unity of spirit, the unity of spirit cannot be partial, racial, ethnic. It can't be Anglican, Greek, Russian, right? It can only be Catholic because Christ himself is one. Okay? The unity of spirit can only be Catholic because it means everybody. Is that Catholic with a small C? Big C. Small C both. <coughs> um, corruptions cannot be a reason for changing dogmas. If any of you know anything about Luther and um, his, his principle of um, turning away from some of the sacraments, changing the Eucharist into what he called consubstantiation. I want everybody to think about this. Um, he changed transubstantiation, the Eucharist, into what he called consubstantiation. 
what he believed, what he argued was that um, when you have a wafer um, and the blessing takes place, it takes place only at the moment when somebody with faith consumes it. Because it's the private faith that makes that real. Okay? Hold on. Just hold on. Consubstantiation. So, if you don't consume it because you've not transformed it in the act of receiving it as an act of faith, throw it away. Can you imagine a Catholic taking the Eucharist after they built and tossing it in the garbage? But hold on. Here's, I mean, here's the thing I want you to see. Um, for him to do that is, is schismatic, not just in belief, it's schismatic of, the, of the, the thing that's being done. One of the old heresies was Christ was not God or not human, he was all one or the other. Or We answered that heresy ages ago, he's both. To claim consubstantiation is to introduce an old heresy back into our church in the very act of taking the Eucharist. Is that clear? He's either both, it's the transubstantiation takes place, and he is really present, body, soul, mind, divinity, human, divine, in that act, or not. Think about how that would undermine our faith. If we're taking Christ's real presence, both, he's becoming part of our lives. I mean, that's why, I mean, those of you who have been doing this for a while now, you know I keep asking this question. When we take the Eucharist and we go out to the parking lot to our car, where are we? If we've just taken God into us and we believe that, we're partly in his kingdom. Are we there? What does it mean to be there on our way to the parking lot? Carrying Christ. We're in his kingdom. How many believe that today? Why are people leaving the church? They obviously don't believe that because if they believe that, they wouldn't be leaving the church. They'd be saying, I don't want to be anywhere else. No. No. Well, there have been a number of polls where Catholics, they polled Catholics, and there are quite a number of Catholics who no longer believe in Catholics. Yeah, right. right. When I was confirmed as a Lutheran years ago, I was taught <clears throat> that Luther believed that we receive the elements in the natural but we receive the body and blood of Jesus supernaturally. Okay? So uh, what normally happens is it's, it's, as you say, in the moment when the person has faith or receive, right? Okay, we're, through, we're done with church, we're cleaning up, so everything gets thrown out. Yeah. You see? Yeah. Because it's, it's no longer there. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, and that's what's so precious about transubstantiation is it's the real present. The Lutheran believes in the real presence. It just it evaporates after church. The Catholic does not believe that. Yeah. If you go back to our class last time, I can't remember, I remember it came up, Connie, I'm sorry, but we were talking about subjectivity and objectivity. I don't remember what the issue was, but think about the implications of what John's saying and what, what I'm trying to get at here. If um, the real presence only becomes real in a, in a private moment of belief, that is, it's not objectively real, think about how that encourages um, a condition of subjectivity, that things are only real according to your private 
view of them. One of the two, two of the views that John Paul is addressing in this book repeatedly over and over again is subject, subjectivism, the world is the way I see it, or relativism, my truth is as good as yours, one truth is as good as another. And over and over again he's saying, no, there is a truth. What we've got from the Bible is the truth. And the question for us is whether we can use our minds, whether we can become more philosophic so that we can defend that truth, grow in our faith by our powers of reason. Because we're, we're naturally good. We were meant to grow so that our faith informs our reason and our powers of reason can in, help us enter mysteries more deeply, see into them. Um, one, one last thing before I turn to, um, don't forget that um, for a Catholic, God, I just got to get you guys in here. For a Catholic, um, we were made in God's image. I mean, most people say that glibly. We are, you know, it's a common. But how many people take that truth and, um, and see that the image of God is Trinitarian, not private? Not alone, not one. We believe in one God, three persons. Can anybody help with that? Oh no, I was just seeing it. I don't Does everybody follow? If we were made in, in the image of God and God is Trinitarian, each of the persons fully indwelling in each other, it meant that finally we were meant to be that way with each other. We were made to love and be loved, to know and to be known. It involves another person, okay? Um, I want to go to two, to two truths in the, you don't have to look at that sheet I gave you, but um, they're there if you want to look at it on that sheet on St. Thomas on the page three. This is from Matthew. Um, one of the causes of concern for Catholics and non-Catholics is the place the Pope has in our faith. You know that um, we believe that the unity is protected in the Pope. It's so that we, we can't have different authorities competing against each other. There's one pope, um, and he stands in the figure of Christ for all of us. We're united in him. It's one of the reasons that keeps us from fragmenting the way the Protestant group does, because it's constantly fragmenting, constantly fragmenting, breaking into other groups. I want to go back to this moment <coughs> just because it's, it gives us a scriptural ground for the position we take. This is in Matthew in chapter 16. Um, and it reads this way, when Jesus went into the region of Caesarea Philip, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, others Jeremiah, and they go on. He said, but who do you say I am? Simon Peter said in reply, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus said to him in reply, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my heavenly Father, and so I say to you, you are Peter, 
and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of the netherworld shall not prevail against it. Sorry, I'm repeating myself for those of you who have heard this, but let me do this again. In the ancient pagan world, in the modern Catholic world, something happened that's not changed. In the ancient pagan world, it was called taking the auspices. Taking the auspices. Taking the auspices. It happens in Homer's The Iliad, it happens in the Odyssey, it happens in Virgil's Aeneid. Those of you who've done it, know it. Um, let me just take a quick example. Um, the night before Odysseus goes into battle, um, he asks for a sign. He, you know, he's going to fight the hundred suitors the next morning. And God thunders. And according to the ancient world, it was, it was noted that um, when somebody received an omen, it was important that it be confirmed because lots of people go wild in their imaginations. Religious people with act, people who are religious can be very active with their imaginations. They can make all sorts of claims. You know that that's, a, that's not a small thing for the church. The church has to confirm <coughs> sightings, omens, appearances, all of them, because they know that a lot of them won't stand. So even the church today has to confirm them. I mean, they, they have to jump through hoops to get evidence to make sure that these are real. That's the truth going back to the pagan world. If you've read the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, you know it happens in Virgil a number of times. Omens are given by the gods, but they have to be confirmed. When Odysseus is, or Aeneas is leaving Rome, um, an omen is given to his son, and it has to be confirmed. Troy has just been destroyed, and they're going to go on to the creation of Rome. Rome is central to that work, the, the creation of this eternal universal city. Um, so that's been an important fact of our experiences of human beings since long before Christ came in the pagan world. Okay. What's happening in this moment when Christ asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? And they say, the people say, you know, he puts it to the disciples, none of them can answer except Peter. And Peter says, you are the Messiah. How did Peter get that? How did he get that? On his own? Yeah. Christ makes clear. But here's the interesting thing. Clearly Peter didn't get that on his own. Something was given to him in that moment. How is it confirmed? By whom? Jesus. By God. That confirm Are you all following me? It's the taking the auspices, the same thing. Except the confirmation here doesn't come from a person or a sign. It comes from God. Now my question just briefly is, because I, I want to get a ground here for all of us to proceed. Why did Christ give that power to Peter? Because that's an extraordinary power. God gave him the insight, or he couldn't have had it on his own, and it's confirmed by God himself. Why did Christ give Peter that kind of power? I give you the kingdom on this rock and the gates of hell will not prevail hell won't stop me why did he give the Peter that kind of authority or power because God the Father gave it to him but why I'm asking by the way he I mean let me put it, he's gonna be the leader of the church 
that's the that's you can say in some sense you may say at the beginning of the church is there he's going to be the leader and he'll make it clear in Acts and you know what happens historically my question is why did Christ give him such a great power are you saying why him over somebody else or just why anybody well why him in this case because right there he's saying you've got the keys and on this on this rock I'll build my church so well clearly if God gave him the knowledge that he needed to have like God wants to give us the knowledge right but we have to be open to receive it so clearly he had the spirit that was open to receive the knowledge that God needed him yeah have. and lots of people get it but my question is why that extraordinary power to the head of the church well because otherwise one of the apostles may say something, another one may have a different idea, and as it goes on, it's going to get distorted. And yep. Wasn't Peter the one that got out of the boat and walked on water with the Lord? <laughs> it, it, until he thought. Until he thought. <laughs> the, the point being is that he had faith to get out of the boat, yeah. where the rest of the disciples probably were sitting there with the oars in their hands and their mouth open. Yeah. Right? Uh, and he wasn't perfect because all of a sudden he realized what he was doing, you know, and just like a, a, a Warner Brothers cartoon. Don't you know you can't do that, you know? And so then he sinks, and he's the one who uh, he's the one who denied Jesus three times. Yeah. Right. So he wasn't perfect. No, but I'm asking the question. By the way, I just want to underscore what John is saying. Um, Christ knew what Peter was going to be. He foretold it. He said, you know, this is going to happen. Peter betrayed him. Peter betrayed him, but he gave him the keys. Let me answer that question first. I'm going to say he he did it knowing because he knew that Peter would never be the leader of the church that he could be if he didn't know himself. And he wouldn't know himself fully until he failed. He betrayed Christ. And think about the importance of that for the leader of the church. Christ knew, right? He knew Peter was going to betray him. He still made him, gave him the keys. But the question, so I, I, I mean, part of, I mean, as I read it, part what I, what I see there is that Christ knew how important it is that Peter see himself as he was because he could not be the leader of the, the church if he didn't. Can anybody really take that position without knowing their own sins, how deep they are, how great they are? But the question I'm asking is why that power? Because that's an extraordinary power. Let me just, I, it seems to me, for anybody else can offer it. To fulfill other, the prophecies, to fulfill. He came to fulfill. Whoever was in that position had to have that power and authority to protect the good that Christ was giving him and to answer the evil because without it there would be no way for him to answer the evil. Look at the, the one, I mean, one of the proofs of the goodness of the Catholic faith is that it survived its evil all these centuries. Isn't that true? I mean, the, 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 I mean when people look at the church and they talk about the corruption and want to leave the church, I'm, I'm wondering where are you going to where are you going to go? What church will be free of corruptions? Yeah. One of the amazing things, I mean, one of the testimonies to the truth of the Catholic Church is that it survived evils from the Peter betrayed Christ. It can't get darker. The church has never been without corruptions. The question is, will it answer them? 
And can it answer them without a power great enough to defeat evil, to be with Christ? So I just want to put this out. So one of the what the rock that we stand on rests partly or largely on the authority, the power that Christ gave Peter. It's the center of our church. And there's a lot there. He he did that knowing Peter would betray him. I, I can't understand that unless he knew Peter had to know himself. He had to come to see himself as he was. What do we see in Acts? Almost immediately after Christ dies, this guy is taken over the church. I mean, he just stands up everywhere, again and again and again. And that's the guy who just betrayed Christ here. That's the first. The second um, is in Revelation, and I want to read this to you. If you go to Revelation chapter 13, John's going to be describing his vision and this, this spiritual warfare. If you haven't read Revelation in a long time, you want to read it. Um, you probably won't be able to sleep for a couple of nights afterward. <laughs> um, but you want to read it. Because here, here everybody, everybody follow this. I, the reason I'm saying that, I've just, we've just finished it at um, St. Francis, and it was an amazing revelation for me. When you read the Gospels, or you hear the Gospels through the year, we're still in mean time, medium time. We're with Christ here. We don't go with him when he goes to the kingdom, when he returns to God. So we're watching Christ in an in-between time here with us. Not final times, here. The interesting thing about the Gospel of John is you can't read John without seeing that the final ends are already here because Christ does nothing without saying, my Father, my Father, my Father, my Father. Over and over and over. It's one of the things that distinguishes John from the synoptics. That whole metaphysical kingdom is brought down here. Christ says, my Father is with me. If you don't see me, you don't see him. If you don't see him, you won't see him. And he's saying it to the Jews who, who say they love the Father. So the kingdom is everywhere present, or he couldn't have performed the miracles he did. But we're still here, temporal time. In Revelation, we see final ends. We're no longer here, we see the end times. It's absolutely crucial to read that because we go to end times. We, we get a vision of final ends. It's all laid out. And one of the things that's made absolutely clear is there cannot be any doubt who's in charge. God won. Christ defeated Satan. That's, that's a fact. It's over. Do we, do we live that way in our faith? Do, do we really live believing that? Or do we let evil overcome us? That's a Manichaean position. It's not Christian Catholic. Anyway, in the middle of Revelation, John is describing the dragon giving this power to the two beasts. The first one comes out of the sea. The second one comes out of land. And the second one performs all these actions that are prophetic. They call down fire from the sky. Because everything the second beast does is to support the first beast. Now, who are those two beasts? And let me offer... I think the church is teaching on this, and it certainly was strengthened by my reading of it. The first beast is all those uh, worldly powers that align themselves against the church in an effort to bring the kingdom down here to make earth, power, control, 
to make the kingdom real here in terms of power, control, wealth, comfort, okay, all of it, so that we can have the kingdom here. The second beast are all those prophets who prophesy, who bring down fire, who show that the beast is right. So what you've got in the first beast and the second beast are parodies of Christ and the prophets. They're doing exactly the same thing except the end of the beast is the kingdom here. They're going to bring it in. Now if that isn't clear, stop for a moment and ask yourself, when you look at the progressive mind in the West, in Europe, in America, it's presenting, it's presenting the creation of this new order. If you get rid of this old order, particularly the Christians with their beliefs, if you get rid of all these class distinctions, if you get rid of all of these, we will bring, we will, we will have a kingdom on earth. We will have a faultless society. Cancel culture, get rid of all these things because we'll bring this order into being. Okay? So the world has never been without that tension, not in Rome, not in Troy, not in Byzantium, not in um, Egypt, not in Babylon, China, and my question is more and more in America, have we lost our roots? Most of the thinkers today on the far left and even on the far right are urging us towards a utopia. If we can only do this, we'll have this kingdom on earth. Paul uses, John Paul uses this word, immanentism. Gosh. Yeah, there's another, try the black one. Immanentism. Immanentism. He, 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 he knows He's using that because he knows what it means. William Buckley years ago used to say, don't immanentize the eschaton. Don't, bring, don't try to bring down the final ends. Don't imminentize the eschaton, the final edge. Because we can't do it. Every attempt to bring in a utopia, in a sense, is a blasphemy. It's trying to replace God. The cross is our way to the kingdom, not um, a new kingdom here on earth, a, a product of us. Does that mean we shouldn't try to have a good political order? No, that doesn't. That's not what's being said. But the danger is if, you're tr if you replace God and try to make his kingdom here on earth, you're going you're gonna to create problems. It's, it's going to be destructive, harmful in some way. So those are some of the problems of our age that John Paul is dealing with, and those are some of the, some of the truths that we hold as Catholics um, that are important for us not to lose sight of uh, in our struggles. Let me, let me stop with that. I want to to Fide Orazio. <laughs> Actually, it's been implied in everything I do. Let me stop. Any questions or comments on all this sort of background stuff that, that I'm giving? Heather? God, I just do not. got to do something about this. Any, any questions? Too quiet. <laughs> Something's wrong. Okay, no questions?
I can't believe this. Well, I didn't understand about the beast. The beast? The first beast, you said, Good are the worldly powers who align themselves. They want their own kingdom, not God's kingdom. Is that right? And then the second beast... Wait, stop there for a second. So Rome, Troy, Babylon... It's an ongoing thing. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a trim, it's an attempt to create a perfect world here. You could look okay. at modern China. You could look at Egypt. You could look at Babylon. You could Rome. If you look at Virgil's treatment of Rome, it's it's an amazing. His poetic treatment of Rome is not exactly the way Rome was a, is a political power. Look at modern America. I mean, we're there's a lot of Americans who want to create a utopian world, a socialistic world, believing it'll eliminate problems. Marx is behind it. Marx believes that if, if we can fight through these battles and get rid of these divisions, we'll create this order. So that's the first beast, yes. Then the second beast are prophets, I guess those even speaking out today, who call, I put who call down fire to align themselves with the worldly powers. Read the, if you read the God, if you read scripture, the revelation in that path, chapter 13, you'll see that that's the way they're described. They have this extraordinary power. God's, God's let them have it. It's exactly like the prophets, except what they're doing is prophesying this kingdom of the first beast. So what you've got in those two beasts is like a turning upside down of what Christ and all the prophets were doing. You know, tr preparing for the Messiah when the Messiah come, came, following him, taking a cross um, to join him in the community of saints with the Father, and, you know. Well, who were some of the prophets you would say that we hear today? Okay, let me, wait, no, you, <laughs> <laughs> you name them, you be still. <laughs> um, you name, give me some, some, name some people who um, zealously, passionately, defend a utopian position, believing that that's what they should be doing? Well, I would say all the Black Lives Matter people. That's good. Hmm? Bill Gates. Who? Bill, Bill Gates. Gates. Boy, how? I mean, go ahead and make that clear, David. He's funding all of us. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Can you think of people who are openly political, I mean, taking positions that are espousing Sanders. 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 Bernie Sanders. 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 Okay, do you want to, Doc, who would you include? AOC. Oh, AOC. AOC. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's a good sure. one. And the squad? I mean, it's all the squad. It doesn't yeah. all of that. And I would say anybody fighting against or wanting to destroy Israel. That's interesting because, is, I mean, according to our faith, Israel is our roots. God chose yes. the Israelites that, and it, I mean, that is such a complicated problem. You know, Paul said salvation waits on the Jews. Um, will a worldly Zion, is that in tune with what Christ says, who completes what the Jewish faith was leading towards, you know? So, such a terribly complex thing. Let me stop there. I mean, you, you fill in the blanks. I mean, you can, the, the thing that I want to do is just for you to see some truths in scripture that are basic to our faith that help us look at the world and see more. We can understand more. 
if we put these two things together, faith and reason, <coughs> any other last comments before? Did you have? No? Okay. Fide Ratio. Um, from now on, our focus will be on the book. This has been to try to get us going. Um, the important thing that John Paul wanted to stress in his introduction is um, that we know ourselves, that we begin with ourselves. That's the journey begins with ourselves in a moment of um, personal self-consciousness because in that moment when we're younger usually when we're younger and when our children I mean, those of you who have kids um, I'm assuming that there's not anybody in this room who hasn't struggled with your children maybe I'm off base there but our kids have grown up in a world that's so unlike the world that we started out in it's just such a different world um, this is how important it is for me personally on the 4th of July which is a celebration of our founding in our family for the last 20 years, we spend the greater part of that reading documents. Constitution, Declaration of Independence, Gettysburg Vest, you know, Lincoln's first inaugural. We, I don't want our kids to forget what our founding is. And I, I say that because I'm so aware of how, how it's threatened right now by politically what's happening in our world. Um, Can you read yeah. aloud to them? Say. Do you read it aloud to Oh, yeah. Them? Yeah, it's gotten teary. They, they read it. They read well, we all read it. I mean, we all, we you know, turns. usually I ask some of the kids to, when they were young or older, just, we're not going to have a 4th of July as long as I'm alive. And if my kids don't care in this condition, I mean, this tradition, when I'm dead, I will come back to haunt them. That's <laughs> <laughs> how serious I am. They may not believe in ghosts right now, but... Um, question? Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Do you discuss it and have the questions as you go, or do you leave that till later? When we do the readings, mm -hmm. we don't. We don't really talk about them. They, they generally just. The meaning is fairly clear. I mean, the kids. I, I can't even. You know, it's interesting. You should. I think we've talked about it enough over the years at dinner table or something, and in, in other circumstances, so that. They don't need to be talked about, but you're, you're, we've never done that on those. I, I, I'm just know, thinking about like the amendments to the Constitution. Yeah, we read some. Yeah, we do. We, yep. It's it. It's it. I think. Boy, that's a really, you know, feeling remiss now. I mean, just you know. No, I am. <laughs> but I think the reason we don't is because it takes a long time oh, yeah. to get through the readings. Mm -hmm. I mean, it takes a good hour, an hour and a half to just. Well, I'm sure they come back later with the questions then. Sometimes they do, Probably among but they're also. But they're also. I mean, the oldest one is fourteen. So, and there are seventeen of them going down from fourteen. She's so. talking about her grandchildren, not her. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, our, our kids. <laughs> our kids have discussed these lots of times. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a great idea. I think we need to do yeah, it. Is. Yeah, so it, is. Wondering, it really bothers me. You know, people in America today see Fourth of July as an occasion for having beer and hot dogs and watching fireworks and that's a great thing to do but I wonder how many of them ever associate that with the 
fire rockets going off in the battle or the words or the amazing wisdom in our founders to I don't want to get started because it's not as don't the amazing thing in our founding no hold on just be patient doctor <laughs> 60 seconds the amazing thing in our founding is and I just to get past this um, we set out to prove a proposition. That was the Declaration of Independence. A proposition has to be proved. Mm -hmm. We were trying to do something that had never been done before, to, to, to take away the division so that people could start out. It didn't mean they all end up at the same place. It meant you didn't have these barriers starting out, class divisions. or In order for every single human being to prove his worth, that had, Athens got close to it, Rome got close to it. The founders knew Athens and Rome really well, but they, they said, they put it in terms, Jefferson's declaration, in terms of a proposition. You put out a proposition to prove it. How well are we proving it today? And I'll stop there. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, let's go. Um, in the second section, after he describes this journey that we are all setting out on, he says, the church is no stranger to this journey of discovery, nor could she ever be. From the moment when through the Paschal mystery she received the gift of ultimate truth about human life, the church has made her pilgrim way along the paths of the world to proclaim that Jesus Christ is the way and the truth and the life. It is her duty to serve humanity in different ways, but one way in particular imposes a responsibility of a quite special kind, the Diaconia of the truth. What is diaconia? What is diaconia? Say again. A system of teaching or a school. The diaconia truth was the previous title of this. I believe that's what it said. But what is diaconia? What is it said meeting with Catholic ed educators. It was a collection of addresses, and the new title was Diaconia of the Truth. Service of the Truth. I don't know what Diaconia means. The Church carries with it an important responsibility. Why? because it was founded by Christ, the knowledge that he gives is certain in a way that can't be true of any human knowledge. Right? This is from God. There cannot be any question. God doesn't play games. He's not going to deceive anybody. Most of our truths leave us with some uncertainty. We're on a quest. We want to continue to know. But in one way, particular imposes a responsibility of a quite special kind. Why? Because the church has been gifted with this um, truth that Christ is the truth he is God so and over and over again he said in me you see the father so if anybody had questions about the father or his kingdom or his love or his justice they were put to rest with Christ and by the way let me just stress that Christ made it clear I I came not to overturn the law, but to fulfill every iota of it. 
he came to answer our injustice, our original injustice, our original sin was against God. Only a human being and a God could do that because our sin was against a God, right? A God couldn't do it because the human part of it would be left undone. A human couldn't do it because it was against a God. It was only a person who was a God and a human who could have answered that original injustice. So everything Christ did was to fill, to fulfill justice, to bring justice back in the world in the form of a love that man had never known before. So he brings justice and love together, both. So the church has a special, special responsibility to bring justice about to hell, bring Christ into the world, a justice and a love. So its responsibility is great. The diaconia of truth means in the service of truth. The church has to serve it. It has to protect it. That's its responsibility. That means it's the responsibility of every one of us. In the service of truth. That's what diaconia means. Driven by, this is in 4, section 4, in the first Driven by the desire to discover the ultimate truth of existence, human beings seek to acquire those universal elements of knowledge which enable them to understand themselves better and to advance in their own self-realization. That's where he started. The fundamental elements of knowledge spring from the wonder awakened in them by the contemplation of creation. Here begins then the journey which will lead them to discover ever new frontiers of knowledge. Without wonder, men and women would lapse into deadening routine and little by little would become incapable of a life genuinely personal. One of the fundamental elements of our journey then is wonder. Wonder means, wonder means wanting to know the causes of things, right? That's Aristotle. The, begin, the beginning of knowledge is wonder. The beginning of knowledge is wonder. Christ said to the disciples, he said, here are the little kids, be like them. What marks the little children? He wasn't saying go back and be stupid because kids generally are. They want to learn, they ask questions. They're simple, they're not proud, they don't act like they have all the answers, they wonder. Well, <laughs> right, right. Why, 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 why? How come? The, 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 what's at the essence of our search for truth is wonder. If we don't have wonder, we won't do anything. Wonder means wanting to know the causes of things. Why? 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 If we lose wonder, in one sense, we stop being human. I'm not, I'm not saying that lightly. Those of you who've done the work, you know, the image of the heroic ideal for the Greeks was Achilles and Odysseus. They were both warriors. The image of an ideal for the Roman was pietas, piety, the love of the gods, and Aeneas. They were great battlers. All of them fought these wars. They were men carrying out this calling. It's our epic foundation. It's, it's with us. It's in all of us. When you get to Dante, what drives Dante? Using the sword to overcome men? He's learning. The entire journey is spent learning what's the nature of sin, what's purgatory, what's paradise. It's all learning. Why? Because he'd read Aristotle, and St. Thomas had read Aristotle, and Dante had read both of them. 
that it's in the nature of man to learn. The fundamental fact of our nature is to learn. If we stop wondering, in some sense we stop being humans. It's, it's absolutely crucial that we keep wondering. So he says we can arrive at what the, this is on page 13 or, or section, the end of section 4. We arrive at what the ancients called opos logos or recta ratio. Correct word or um, corrected reason. Aristotle called it right reason. Put that in quotes, right reason. When you look at the political debates today and you look at the way people use reason, would you say they're using it because they have good wills and their passions are under control? Or their reason is driven by their passions? John Paul will say that having a, that the disposition of our wills is crucial to using reason well. Let me repeat that. Can we use our minds well if our passions or our emotions are disordered? No. 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 Won't, won't the way we use reason reflect some of that disturbance? Yes. Mm -hmm. The great call for a Catholic is not just faith and being saved, it is, but it's to learn to use reason well, right reason. We can't do that without ordering our emotions. That's what St. Augustine said, ordering our emotions. Without ordinate emotions, we can't use our minds well. So we have to start with ourselves. If our call is to love others, human beings, to bring justice to the world, those are basic to our calls, right? To be a just person. That's in the, when we do the readings every day through the year, the Old Testament readings will always be about the just man. Always just man. Justice, justice, justice. The new readings will be about love and justice and more love. But, but the two. Can we bring justice to the world? Can we love other beings if we haven't learned to order ourselves? Can we be the gift to others that we want to be if we don't struggle to order our own souls? No. So the first call is um, to set out on this journey um, and to pick up this responsibility that the church has left us with, this diaconia, to serve the truth. Okay. He says in 5, as we're getting to the end of the introduction still, reason has become specialized, limited, conditioned. This has given rise to forms of agnosticism, relativism, which has led philosophical research to lose its way in the shifting sands of right, widespread skepticism. A legitimate plur plurality of positions has yielded to an undifferentiated pluralism based on the assumption that all positions are equally valid. That goes back to what I said earlier. The major faults of our age, subjectivism. That I can't see anything but myself. Relativism, one truth is as good as another. Yeah, I would include in that John Paul doesn't mention it, but um, idealism, and this doesn't mean what you think it does, because we all have ideals. Idealism is the philosophy that began with Descartes and was continued with Kant and 
some of the modern metaphysicians. Idealism means, starting with Descartes and Kant, we can't know the we can't know the truth through our senses, through our bodies. Fundamental to the Catholic belief is that all knowledge begins in our senses, in our bodies. Go to our rituals and you'll... Um, the idealist philosophy says all we can know are the ideas in our heads. Ideas. We can't get out of the ideas in our heads. So we end up isolated from one another and we can't get to any objective reality outside. So he's saying reason has become specialized, limited, conditioned. It's produced agnosticism, relativism, idealism. We have no way of getting outside of our heads into the reality of another person or into an objective reality outside of ourselves. There's so much going on in the modern world that leads us that begins with ourselves and ends with ourselves. We can't get out of ourselves. He says, um, approaching the end of the first section, I feel impelled to undertake this task above, above all because of the Second Vatican's Council insistence that bishops are witnesses of divine and Catholic truth. To bear witness to the truth is therefore a task entrusted to us bishops. We cannot renounce this task without failing in the ministry which we have received. Go down, this is towards the end on page 16. In the letter, the present letter, I wish to pursue that reflection by concentrating <coughs> on the theme of truth itself and on its foundation in relation to faith. The need for a foundation for personal and communal life becomes all the more pressing at a time when we are faced with the patent inadequacy of perspectives in which the ephemeral is affirmed as a value and the possibility of discovering the real meaning of life is cast into doubt. We live in an age, our kids are growing up in an age where we're all encouraged to believe we can't know something, we can't arrive at the search, I mean at the end of we just keep going on. It leaves us in doubt. It leaves us with a false modesty. We're afraid to take a stand because we're afraid we, we might be wrong because everybody can have their own truth. Nobody speaks up. Um, this is why many young people stumble through life to the very edge of the abyss. Some people take their lives. Um, without knowing where they're going. At times this happens because those whose vocation it is to give cultural expression to their thinking no longer look to truth, preferring quick success to the toil of patient inquiry into what makes life worth living. It seems to me he's partly critiquing the leaders of the church, bishops, priests, um, as shepherds. Are they standing on a truth? Are they, do they have the courage to take those truths to us. So chapter one is, has two parts. It's broken into two parts. The title is the revelation of God's wisdom. The two parts are Jesus, the revealer of the Father. In Christ we see the whole kingdom. The second part, reason before the mystery. So here's where John Paul is going. There cannot be any doubt for us about the final ends of things. The victory has been won. 
Christ defeated evil, Satan. He overcame it. Um, we get a glimpse of the Father and the kingdom through Christ. We know the Father through him. He says in me, can there be any doubt about the importance of laws? The Father gave them in Moses. Can there be any doubt about love? We've got both in Christ. So we've been given the truth. It's whole. It's complete. It's greater than any good a teacher will give us, a philosopher, a political thinker, because its source is God. We cannot doubt it. That came, if we doubt that, what can we believe? Yeah. And the second section of the first chapter is reason for the mystery. How does reason stand dealing with that mystery that everything's been revealed to us? Okay. That's the first chapter, okay? We'll, we'll pick up there, and I'll try to cover chapters one, two, maybe three, something to give, now that we're getting into the book. We'll see if we can cover that next week. Any, any questions or before we stop? I, I have a comment. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's the very first thing that he says in, 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 the, in his encyclical, and, and it, it keeps, it's a word, it's a, it's a word picture. And I just want to bring it out. I'm going to take this off. Because every time I read it, and I, I, I highlighted it, uh, I see a picture of a bird. And he says, faith and reason are like two wings. Right. on which the human spirit rises in the contemplation of truth. Yeah. If one of those wings is broken, right. that bird doesn't fly. Right. Right. So for that Good. bird to fly high, that bird has fly to all. both wings. Right. Yeah. Good. Yeah. We have a commitment that's, I mean, you can't look to the rest of the Christian world, certainly not as fundamentalist, and you can't look to Islam, you can't look to the secular world, find anything like this. It's the gift, it's the inheritance of the Catholic Church. That's why John Paul is saying it's, he feels obliged to look at his predecessors, what they've done, because he sees that this time in history, it's absolutely crucial that we pick this up again, because we're not doing well at it. So, okay, let's, did you have something? Go ahead. Uh, yeah. So this is this is still in the long notes you get gave us right at the beginning that we're trying to read that this, where this wisdom is coming from. Yeah. Okay. So I just wanted to know. Wait, ask that again. I'm not sure. Say it uh, again. As far as referring back to this, so when we do our readings, yes. that's in the whatever this is named. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yes. Those chapters. So that's in the that's in the first thing you give us the letters of Paul, right? He's trying to figure out what to study for next week. Read the first three chapters. I'm assuming most of you are well on your way anyway, but but I'll, we'll see if we can't, if I can't cover those three. We should be able to do. We should be able to move a little bit faster because I've covered. Typically, what I do is something like this. I try to give background things and try to um, give us a foundation. And and now to go through. The text itself. We just covered the introduction. I'm 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 right. content to leave that. 
Um, but next week when we get together, we'll do chapters one, two, and possibly, I think probably we can do three, chapters one, two, and three. So for next week, read those chapters. They're all short. They're, it's not an easy read. He's, yeah. He uses terms and he's, qu he's, quoting, he's quoting passages from the Bible everywhere. Um, it's, a, it's not an easy read, but stay with it. We, we, will, we will give some clarity to it when we meet, I hope. With me doing this and Suzanne keeping me correct. Keep, that's right. <laughs> so why do you think that it was, it's not an easy read? Like, what was he thinking, what was the encyclical meant for? Is it just meant for the... You know, I no. Let me let me just. I, I, I believe, personally, pretty seriously. Suzanne and I weren't born Catholic. I mean, I think you know that. Um, I was raised Greek Orthodox. She was raised Protestant. We both converted. We came into the church at a time when I believe historically we had two of the greatest popes we've had in a long, long time. Pope John Paul was a rare, but I think this is personally now. I'm saying so. Um, that his um, charism was pastoral, the youth. Um, but if you look at Theology of the Body and Fidei Ratio, they are not easy to read, neither one of them. He was tackling really difficult things. I don't, he, he's not a writer like C.S. Lewis, and he doesn't write, he's, he's got a world to give to people. Um, I think he's doing a good job, but if you read Chesterton or Lewis or you know somebody, you're you're reading a person who's a writer. I mean, they can write simple. He's got a ton that he's got to condense because he's dealing with a massive problem, and he's trying to do it in one encyclical. Um, he's trying to recover reason. We are the most rationalistic people in the world. Talk to anybody today who's been educated. <laughs> it's like talking to a wall, and everybody's been educated. The masses are educated, so. It's, it's, it's so appropriate that he would write this encyclical now because he's saying we have to recover reason if we're to do anything with our faith. So he's tackling a, a really tough problem at a really tough time in history. Um, Theology body is not easy to read either. And I, I don't think that's his fault. He's as clear as he is, but he's, he's just got an awful lot to get across to us. One of the things that's upsetting to me, I, somewhere what I read, I don't remember where, but um, he was upset, a little bit disturbed, because he, whatever the sources were, he, he learned that people weren't taking this as seriously. I wonder how many, I know priests who've never read it. That's a little bit stunning to me. It, I'm almost embarrassed to think that a bishop would not have read this. I would have thought that no bishop could be a bishop without reading all the encyclicals. Um, but sometimes you wonder, how many do read them, and more importantly, how many take them seriously and try to live them. This is from the head of the church. So, I don't think that answers your no, question. No, it did. But, Thank but you. No, it did. It's a tough time for reason. Mm -hmm. I think that's why we're here. Certainly why I wanted to do this. Um, I'm glad you took us back, because I think that's a beautiful image, you know, that lose either one of those wings. If you see us in terms of a flight to God, I don't. I mean, usually I think of, of us tripping on our way to <laughs> God. Maybe that's too much of myself, but 
But if you want to use the image of a bird, you know, you take away one of the wings and so. Yeah. Us. I mean, it's, it's when we learn to see, you know, like, it wasn't good to have felt that way, or I overdid it, or I, you know, or that our mind is a guide to help our mind. That's why earlier I said that the, two of the great gifts for us, or the trials for us, the tasks, is to learn to order our emotions. But how do we do it if we don't have a truth guiding us, guiding us to say, you know, I overdid it, or I shouldn't have felt that, or it's better to... Um, we, 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 we enter the world from our fall with disordered emotions. That was St. Augustine. How do we learn to order them? To, to love the way we should. Oh, Augustine, to, to learn to give the right amount of love to each thing. Should we love a pony as much as our spouse or a dog or a cat or, you know, or our job? Um, if we don't learn to order emotions, how can we love the right way? So reason is absolutely essential yeah, to this, recovering it but not at the expense of emotions. The, the issue here is we don't get better to, by denying our emotional lives. Our, our loves are rooted there. We can't come to love the way we should if we deny our emotions. The question is, can we order them so that we can love the way we should, the way Christ asked us to love? Okay, um, see you all. I'll talk with the people in power here about a, our space. I don't know what we're gonna do about this. Get closer, yeah. Turn on the light. Yep, 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 yep. If they had different kind of desks, it would probably, I mean, check tables would probably work. But oh, yes, I'm like, we can add in the other building. No, there's like, we can turn that on. It's all no, but we're just talking about the table. If it's a table, they have a little 